Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, y'all. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Celtics Blog Podcast, where we have now seen the Celtics run to six wins in the postseason a couple weeks ago when we previewed the Bucks series when we started talking about if it was over after two nothing we learned a valuable lesson in that Marcus Smart is crucial to this team as he leads the way scoring in the game two win that we watched yesterday over the 76ers we learned that the series isn't over after two nothing so we're not going to do any of that here on today's show and number three We learned that Al Horford is a playoff menace. There's no way around it. This guy is a special kind of playoff performer. It has become definitively clear to me through his comments, through his boost in productivity into both of the last two postseasons in completely different roles, that he has learned the art of flipping the switch If Justin Rowan is listening, he knows exactly what I mean. From the Kyrie Irving days in Cleveland, Horford is flipping the switch into these postseasons. And into his 30s, over 700 games into his career. That is not surprising or negative to me. He's saved himself through the end of that regular season when we saw him struggle out of the All-Star break. When we saw him fizzle inefficiency toward the postseason and now they're getting the very best of him once again through nine games Horford is shooting nearly 60% strong on the boards as he had been through the best days of his career he's defending at the highest level his performance against Giannis and others inside in game seven was remarkable and now into the next series, he's getting the best of his man on help and man-to-man defense. And now, we're seeing him continue to take it to his defenders, whether that be Thonmaker or Joel Embiid. And wow, did he get the best of Joel Embiid in the final minutes of the Game 2 win that now sends the Celtics off to Philadelphia with a 2-0 lead. So, I am Bobby Manning. This is another edition of the Celtics Blog Podcast, the Banners Broadcast. And we remind you to check out CelticsBlog.com because my piece about Al Horford, the reminder that the Celtics still have an All-Star. We were all laughing at the thought of Horford playing in the All-Star game and he ended up behind Joel Embiid, overshadowed by Embiid in that game, but now it has flipped the other way around into the postseason other interesting pieces up we're gonna hear from Alex Kangu today who talked about Horford's impact specifically in game two it's an Al Horford episode it was due 
We're also going to plug Bill Sy. The Celtics went on a 26-8 run in Game 2 through that second quarter. Brett Brown just completely dropped the ball and not calling a timeout in that one, and he is going to deserve all the scorn he gets over the next few days for not understanding how to take a timeout. Twitter's going to understandably get after him for that one. And luckily for him, Simmons photoshopped on Will Chamberlain with the 1 over the 100 is going to overshadow that just a little bit, but not too much. But as I said... Let's not get ahead of ourselves today. Let's contextualize this. Let's anticipate what's going to come, what adjustments are to come for Philadelphia. So our analysis is two-folded today in this episode. We're going to talk to Alex Kangu of Celtics Blog, regular contributor to this show about Horford and how special he's revealing to be again for this team, no matter his role. He's the chameleon. He is the great adapter. He's Big Al. And then we're going to talk to Clevis Murray of CLNS Media and The Athletic. Lots of our Celtic friends have turned over to The Athletic, and he's the first we're going to talk to since they all did so. And with him, I want to anticipate what's going to come on the Philadelphia side. I'm not going to ask him, is this series over? Because I asked Jimmy Toscano that one after the 2 nothing lead against Milwaukee, and that did not go well. So let's get it. First on the line, Alex Kungu. Keeping with our Al Horford theme, here he is, Alex Kungu. Two separate Al Horford articles up at Celtics Boy between me and him today. I got into my thoughts on his series to this point, his postseason to this point in the opening segment. But let's turn it over to you. Why does it feel like there's a different kind of Horford come the postseason between him shooting 60% last year through the first two rounds and now, again, right up there at 59? Yeah, I, I think I, it's been kind of alluded to now as kind of comps have come out, but he definitely conserves himself, and the Celtics do their best to conserve him as well. And I think in the playoffs, what you see is a more con, like a more concentrated effort to get him involved and run the offense through him. And the playoffs, it's very matchup-specific. There's very specific things that you attack. And for the most part, Al Horford is one of the guys who you want to get the ball to most of the time. He's quick. He's too quick for traditional centers, as you see with Embiid last night. He's too strong for some like the stretch guys, as you saw in Milwaukee, against guys like Don Maker and Giannis. And he's just a mismatched hell for people. And I think the Celtics know that. And they constantly, when the, they know when the games get tight, they know that they can rely on him to make plays. So I think that's why you see a more concentrated effort of him specifically in the playoffs. It, it reminds me of what we saw back when the power forwards were starting to get a little bit shorter, a little bit quicker, and those traditional guys weren't able to keep up, weren't able to step out to the outside on them. And this isn't anything new with Horford, but a sort of continuation of what has made the Celtics team so great since he got here is that they can put him at the five, and he is quicker more explosive off the first step, and more versatile as a whole with his offensive skill set than what these bigger centers are capable of. And it was one thing to see him blow by Thonmaker in the last series. That Game 7 was ridiculous. We didn't even get to talk about that on here, just how big of a domination that was. But then he comes back and does it again in Game 1 against Philadelphia. 26 points again, blown by whether it be Embiid, any of the guys they threw at him. In Game 2, which you broke down for the site, 
was where it really hit a high point for the Celtics in isolating Embiid into that fourth quarter. And I talked about it too, those last five minutes, it looked like Embiid was lost on an island in the middle of the paint there. I, th- I think the Celtics made a, like, a concerted effort to, I guess, take away the three-pointers. I remember at the end of game one, there was that play where Embiid sunk all the way to the paint. They kick it out, and now Horford's wide open for three. And I think the Sixers decided, okay, well, today we're going to just take that away. And you're not going to get that three. And instead, what it did was turn Al Horford into a, the primary driving kick guy. So now he was able to get a step, and then he was able to force like some of the Sixers' tough defenders into a tough choice of either give me this layup or give up a corner three. So even though you took away the three from Al Horford, you didn't necessarily take it away from the team. And I think that's what makes him such a mismatch problem, that even when you counter that type of stuff, for most stretch bigs, that's, uh, oh, you close out here, back to the guard. For Al Horford, that's okay. I'll put the ball on the floor and I can make a decision. So, yeah, it was. It's great to see. It's awesome to have that that type of chess piece in the middle. And Stevens is working him really well. And for the people that have been hiring Horford the whole time, myself, I'm sure you have been too through the criticisms. It's really a small segment of people who have been hard on Horford through the years. And when he needs to be criticized, we'll do it. But I think the overwhelming amount of time, over 80% of the time he's been with the Celtics, he's done great things. And I've asked this question before on this show, and it still doesn't seem like we have a definitive answer. Why does this guy in particular seem so polarizing? Like, nothing about him is polarizing. He's just great on both ends of the floor. I guess the points relative to the paycheck is a problem. But overall... You, you couldn't expect more from a player who's in his role. Yeah, I mean, for me, I always kind of felt that because sports are kind of entertainment, I think sometimes casual fans just want to be entertained. And mm-hmm. from entertaining, very it's like very simplistic. Like, I want to see big dunks. I want to see guys shoot from like 35 feet. I want to see like crazy passes. And Al Horford just doesn't do any of that. He's just very sound in what he does. And it's very effective. But for a casual fan who maybe doesn't is, isn't reading blogs 24-7, it's just going to watch the games from 7 to 9, I can understand where maybe you're just like, okay, well, what else does he do? Like, what does he do more? But I think it's very clear for anyone who actually watches basketball, understands basketball, that Al Horford is an all-star. I'd even say maybe one of the best unicorns in the game, which is something mm-hmm. you don't a lot, but he probably is one of the best unicorns in the game. And there's just no taking away the fact that teams absolutely get killed by him every year because there's no way to really match up with him straight up. This postseason, he has topped what he did last year, which I didn't think was possible from a per 100 perspective. He's 129 offensive rating, 107 defensive rating through nine games now, which is absolutely absurd. The overall efficiency is right where it was before, or in the same range, right around 60, maybe just a little bit better. But it is astonishing to watch, and it's it's what he deserves. You know, credit to him for going out there and just, you know, this isn't him doing well, and we have to go out and, like, spread the good word about it. This is him doing so over-the-top amazing that it just, like, punches everybody across the face who had any doubt about his importance to this team. And I think what he's doing with this group 
in particular is even more impressive than what he was doing last year because last year he had the two man going with Thomas. He had that go- he had that going with Irving earlier this year and he lost it. And this is a guy who had to change roles through the course of the year. I wrote about that a little bit too. Is the fact that when he was going through some of those struggles coming out of the All Star break, he was seeing his role with this team shift more toward greater ball handling responsibilities, a greater scoring burden on him, and it looks like now he's just starting to click in that role that he's found with the team. And I think Marcus Smart has helped a little bit too. You saw that in the last few minutes, the dynamic they had at the top of the paint. But overall, he it seems like he's able to shift perfectly to what the situation calls for. Yeah, and I mean, that's just a testament again to how how just the ability to do everything and be such a sound all-around player just allows them to kind of be a chameleon for this team and take on whatever role that the team needs in that moment. Going from more of like a passing hub facilitator to all of a sudden just the primary option and the one who initiates all of or most of the scoring for the Celtics is not something that a lot of guys can do. And hats off to him for being able to just pull that off. The numbers are astonishing too when you look deep into them, advanced numbers on Horford. His past few postseasons, he's put up great numbers from the box plus minus standpoint. I love that stat just because I think it really hones in on the caliber of defensive impact you're having. You can really boost your box plus minus by boosting the defensive side of it. But for the first time in his playoff career, he is boosting it with the offensive side of that. The 4.3 by far that he's posted in the offensive box plus minus category has him up to a 7.1 in box plus minus, which if you look at the leaders in the NBA regular season this year, that puts him right up among them. I'm just looking it up now so I can get some of the names that you'd have to compare Horford to to get similar numbers like that. But even as we both kind of expected this, I think, has anything surprised you? about Horford's postseason run this year? Yeah, I think I think what surprised me the most isn't necessarily the defense, but more so like his post scoring and his aggressiveness is still kind of like it's still kind of new because it's, it's it's aggressive in a new way. Yeah. Like last year last year was a lot more like, okay, like I'm taking more shots and they're 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 still coming off of like the pick and pop stuff, but now it's just a higher volume. Now we're seeing him like attack closeouts, go to the post shoot threes, take fadeaway jumpers in the mid-range. Like, there's it, there's just this new level of aggressiveness that is rarely seen from Al Horford. And the fact that he's doing it now at this stage of his career, at a time when, like, the team just needs it the most, is just, it's great to see. Like, it's good to see him do this at the biggest stage, especially a guy who's always been, you know, like, looked down upon as just, like, a, a screen setter. Yeah, and the way that shifted from the All-Star game to now is pretty amazing, especially when Embiid and Horford were both playing on the same side. It it, it sounded like Brett Brown after the game was completely perplexed about how he was going to handle with this. We know Brett Brown was perplexed about a lot of things coming out of Game 2. We're going to get to that in the second segment we have here coming up. But from a Horford perspective, do you think Philadelphia has any answer for what is going on here i i think there's a number of overall adjustments they could make through the series but i think that matchup as brown said after game two is going to continue to be a problem for them and that is a great sign for the celtics the fact that we came into the series possibly thinking that philadelphia had the best two players but i didn't realize and i didn't give enough credit to the fact that boston has been a dominant 
defensive team start to finish this year and their strength defensively comes from the interior. So they've been able to throw Baines in his face, Horford in help. Uh, even Monroe, I thought, for that short little stint in Game 2 had a nice defensive stretch. So they are the, where they want to play, which is through the paint, is where they're hitting the hardest wall of the Celtics' defense. So I don't see any definitive way they could adjust to this. They do have some shooters, but we know they don't like to go small. We know their most important players are all big men. So where does Philly go from here? Yeah, I mean, the only other option you could say is potentially just not guarding Smart anymore and just deciding to live with whatever he does. But then you see the problems with that, which is last night, where he could be a streaky guy who hits some big shots for you. And if you notice on that last play where Horford got that uh, layup to kind of clinch the game, Marcus Smart was standing at almost half court, and J.J. Redick refused to leave that position simply because he spent the whole first half training threes in his face. And Mark Smart's a non-shooter, and we've, a lot of people have talked about how even though he's a non-shooter, he's still able to attract defenders. But stuff like that is real. And I think that unless Philly can, I don't know, just find a way to just live with Marcus Smart shooting threes and hope he doesn't get high like that again, or just, yeah, like, I kind of agree with you. I, I'm not sure where I'm not sure where this big shift comes from. I don't see a Don Maker ace looking for them or like a Matthew Delladova ace. It's just something where the Celtics are kind of built in a way to beat a team like Philly who lives and dies with the three. If we're contextualizing Al Horford's playoffs so far among the leaders in that category, LeBron James sets the standard at 16.5. Harden is right behind him at 12.9. Kind of drops off from there. But then you have Terry Rozier, fourth in all the playoffs in box plus minus at 7.7 because of his offense. 6.9 of that is from the offensive end which he's third in. And then down to seven, right with John Wall, Victor Oladipo, 7.1. Al Horford in box plus minus is good for seventh in the playoffs and ninth on the offensive end. So the Celtics have two of the top 10 efficiency advanced stat-based offensive players in this postseason, which is amazing because I think, as we talked about coming into the playoffs the big issue for this team is putting the ball in the bucket, and game after game, they are somehow uh, overcoming that deficiency that we thought they might have, and I think there's enough of a sample size where we can look at it now and say whether it's Horford's playmaking, his aggressiveness and efficiency, Terry Roger, what he's done, Tatum, that they aren't a bad offensive team by any stretch of the imagination, and I don't know if the system has developed over time, they just feel more confident as individuals in it. Or maybe they're just a better shot-making team than last year. They are, they are the real deal on offense into this postseason, it looks like. What would you attribute it to? Yeah, I think one stat to um, look at is during during most of the regular season, the Celtics were actually like a kind of average passing team in terms of like passes per game. And I think what you're kind of seeing now, especially in the playoffs, and now they suddenly become like one of the top passing teams. They moved the ball a lot more than they have almost the entire year. And it's created like better shots for everyone. It's created more driving lanes for everyone. And I think part of that is also like kind of like shortening the rotation and only playing those uh, top guys have kind of has kind of created this more co- cohesive union, more cohesive, cohesive offense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, most people, it'd be crazy to suggest that, like, people could have saw that, saw it coming. So, 
I mean, it's, it's a testament to coaching staff and it's a testament to players who are able to be put in a position to succeed and doing it at highest level, especially some of the young guys. We're talking to Clevis Murray of The Athletic and CLNS Media in the second segment here, and we're going to flip it over to the Philadelphia side and think about how this series could shift. Because I remember I was doing the same show right here with uh, Jimmy Toscano talking about whether or not the Milwaukee series was done when it was 2 nothing, and that just completely taught me that we're not going to do the same thing here because this series could absolutely flip 180 going back to the 76ers' home court. But... If we're going to try to highlight some thing, places where this could go wrong for Boston, where they're going to have to adjust, what did you think of that second quarter where the Celtics really started getting behind, even the first quarter when they just were shut off from a offensive standpoint and they put themselves in a massive hole that I've never seen a team come back from so quickly. It's almost easy to forget how big of a hole they were in in the first half of this game. What troubles do you think Philadelphia threw at them during that stretch? Yeah, I think defend. I think defensively is really where Philadelphia became became like a separator because I think they were just so aggressive at the top and denying passing lanes. Yeah, they forced the Celtics to kind of bog down and go into like the little isolation stuff that like we saw sometimes like rear its head against Milwaukee like at home and stuff like that. But then on the offensive end, I don't really see much to take from that except Philly just hit a lot of very difficult shots. Mm-hmm. Right, with draining shots in Marcus Smart's face. Dario Stark was hitting crazy shots. Robert Covington was hitting shots. And it was just one of those scenarios where um, they just hit a lot of difficult shots. But, de- but defensively, that you kind of saw a way that their aggressiveness could force the Celtics into being more of an isolation-based team. And I think if you're an opposing team, that that that's kind of what you want. Like, you want them to be five seconds on the shot clock, came the ball to Jason Tatum and do something, or to Terry Rozier. And if you could do that for 48 minutes, which, I mean, up to this point, no no one really has, um, there's a chance. Like, there's a way to slow on the Celtics team. So what I'd be looking for is at home, behind that home crowd, that Philly home crowd for game three. Um, I lo- I'd like to see, could, could the Celtics respond to that? Or are the Celtics, Celtics going to be able to match their energy from the jump and avoid being dug in that hole? Because I don't think that in that same hole in Philadelphia – I'm not 100% sure the Celtics are able to come back like that. So it's imperative that they do not dig themselves in anything like that again. That's a definitive question about this team. Do they have the makeup to win on the road? Because in the first round, it definitely did not look like it. They caved big time when the pressure came in Milwaukee against that relentless transition attack they threw at them out there. This team's a lot different, but there's similar overwhelming factors. We haven't even seen the close we haven't even seen close to what the best of Ben Simmons is in this series. So we're going to look out for that and other things on that other side of uh, the matchup. So we'll talk to Clevis about that real quick before we go. Will we see Markel Fultz in this series? I mean, if the camera zooms in on him again, like (laughs) (laughs) outside of that, probably not. (laughs) Wow. All right. We'll get into that and other topics in the next segment for now. Nice talking to you as always, Alex. Thanks for having me, Bobby. Hey, guys. I remember the the conversations with my dad back in the day. Used to ask him when I was a little kid, when I had all those questions growing up, when did your hair turn gray? And he would always tell me. It was in his 20s, before the age of 30. And that always shocked me. I didn't think that was possible. We take our hair for granted. It's one of the most important parts of our lives. But then I found out 
Just about a week ago, 66% of men lose their hair by 35. And the big reason is they just aren't proactive about it. And luckily I have that knowledge now as I start to get into my 20s. So I'll ask you, is your hairline slowly moving backward? Do you see any bald spots? Those are signs that it's already becoming too late. And if you turn to the weird solutions, it's not going to work for you. If your problem is that you're worried about hair loss, if you're starting to see the signs creep up, you don't want to wait at all. And I'll give you a solution that you can use to intercept this before it's too late. It's 4hims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. And thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat your hair loss. So you aren't getting the oils, the gas station supplements. These are medical grade generic equivalents to prescriptions that help you keep your hair. There's no waiting room, no awkward visit with the doctor. You don't have to tell anybody you're doing this. It's all confidential and the products are shipped directly to your door. So, I'm going to give you the chance to try this out, see for yourself if Hems is for you. Our listeners are going to get a trial month of Hems for just $5 today, right now while supplies last. See website for full details. This will cost you hundreds. Zero, zero. If you went inside a doctor or pharmacy, so go to 4hems.com slash CB. That is 4hims.com slash CB, and you're going to get your trial set for $5. That is nothing compared to the value of your hair. Back to the show in just one second. As I promised, Clevis Murray at The Athletic is with us, CLNS Media as well. Welcome, Clevis. I got to ask you right off the bat, what's the bigger... What's the uh, better big three we have to look forward to next year? Is it Horford, Hayward, and Irving? Or is it you, Jared, and Jay over there at the Garden? <laughs> um, hopefully it's me, Jared, and Jay. You know, we're, trying to, we're trying to do something special in Boston. We're not so good start so far in our first month of inception here in Boston. Um, I think we delivered some good content. You know, you could have gone in the athletics for the past few years. You know, it's a different outlet. Um, but I think we've been doing a good job. And hopefully we're the big three that people uh, pay attention to, you know, hopefully bringing those TV type of views to our uh, articles. (laughs) Well, he's on the move right now, and we're going to try again inside and look at Philadelphia and what has gone wrong from their perspective in this series. As I said in the first segment, I'm not going to write this series off as I did last series after 2-0. I learned a tough lesson there. Uh, But I am trying to anticipate where Philly's going to go from here, what kind of adjustments they're going to make. Obviously, the Bucks had a bunch of assets on their bench that they weren't utilizing, that they began utilizing. Philly's in a similar space. There's a few guys down there, Jared Bayless, Markel Fultz, who we haven't seen at all yet. But what uh, adjustments do you anticipate the 76ers turning to as the series swings back to their home court? I mean, uh, you know, it's funny because you would think they'll make adjustments, but uh, Brett Brown said last night in his post-game presser after their loss that he's not making any adjustments, that you would make the same decisions that he made in Game 2 to make them again. You know, I don't. I think the Sixers remain the same. Obviously, they'll probably play better at home, but I don't see them making any, you know, rotation adjustments. Um, you know, the Sixers, you got to play their game, and if you have to play, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that Ben Simmons has finished another game with one point. No, I've never um, seen anything and, and like that. Hit, 
yeah, so you just got to hit your shots. You know, it's all about timing. Everyone struggles. You know, it happens to everyone. Um, the big question, game three is literally their season is on the line. If you go down 3-0, we all know no team's ever done that in NBA history to come back to 3-0 deficit and win these series. So, you know, that season's on the line tomorrow night. Let's see if they get it done. Is there any stat? You're big with the stats. You're big on the uh, analytical <laughs> side of it. Is there anything that sticks out to you about this series so far that you find particularly interesting that may end up changing as we move forward? Obviously, Al Horford's playing at a ridiculous rate. We talked about that in the first half. This Celtics offense overall, it's absurd that a team we thought might struggle with offense in the postseason as two of the best uh, 10 offensive players when you look at Roger and Horford and what they've done on that end from an advanced stats perspective. Uh, what, what sticks out to you from a stats perspective on this series so far? Um, I think from a stats perspective, I think it's just the uh, the uh, development of Jason Tatum and Terry Rozier. Both of those guys have been very, including Al Horford, all of those guys have been very efficient. You see Jason Tatum in four consecutive 20-point games. The first rookie to do that since Kobe Bryant in 1999. Excuse me, I think he's the youngest player to do that since Kobe Bryant in 1999 at the age of 20. Uh, I believe Kobe's 20, 21 times that he did that. Uh, obviously, George Jonathan Mitchell, who's also doing that right now in Utah. Um, it just shows you that Jason Tatum is very efficient. He's becoming confident on the biggest stage of them all, the NBA playoffs. Uh, so that, that's a stat that sticks up to me. Honestly, Horford's efficiency sticks out to me. And again, the, the uh, Marcus Smart, you know, not a guy that really scores a lot, but his defensive output speaks volumes. It speaks something bigger than the box score. Um, and I think anal- I think analytics are Marcus Smart's best friend when it helps him, uh, you know, probably enter contract negotiations this summer. Yeah. He's got a lot to play for. He's playing with one hand, but he's making it work. I want to take a look at his uh, net rating right now, actually. It's it's still negative, but they have gotten a decent amount of scoring from him, especially when you look at Game 2, which is important by their standards. They'll take it where they get it, considering how short-handed they are. I do wonder, you mentioned Ben Simmons. I've never seen a player of that caliber come up as short as he did in game one. I was dying laughing at the Wilt Chamberlain edit that they threw at him. That was one of the most disrespectful. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that, yeah. <laughs> That was one of the more disrespectful moments I've seen. So we'll, we're, th- that's some motivation right there to get back into his game because he was putting up LeBron James-esque numbers earlier in this season. I, obviously, he doesn't have a jump shot that he can rely on. But other than that, what has been his biggest trouble uh, so far through two games? I mean, uh, you know, the Celtics said their game plan is that they want Ben Simmons to score. And, you know, I don't think you'll ever hear an NBA team tell another NBA player that we want you to score as part of their game plan. Um, but that's what, the, that's what the Celtics want him to do. They want him to score, and he's not comfortable being the go-to scorer right now. You know, I'm, I think Ben Simmons can score. Um, it's, just the, it's just that the Celtics are physical with him, even though he doesn't want to admit it. Like you said, the Miami Heat were more physical than the Celtics. And that maybe is true. It's all about personal preference. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, that's the game for himself. They want him to score, and he's not doing that right now. He's more focused on facilitating to their shooters, which, you know, isn't a bad game plan for himself and the Sixers. I remember the Isaiah Thomas 50-point game last year and how electric that atmosphere was. It was a special crowd, too, his first game after his sister's death. And there's always a very intense, 
emotional crowd come playoff time at TD Garden. But some people were talking about Jalen Brown, especially after the game, it seemed like, was saying this was next level after game two. And just from a game perspective, it, it was one of the better ones I've seen. I've never seen a team overcome a 20-point deficit as quickly as they did. It was it was like a non-story by the second half how quickly they were able to overcome that. What was the atmosphere like there, being there, and how did it compare to the other games you've seen over the years? Um, yeah, that, the atmosphere is definitely crazy. Um, you know, that second quarter was a huge difference for them. I think they trimmed it within 22 points to, I think, a five-point lead. So five-point deficit in just five minutes going into halftime. You see that they ended the second quarter on a 17-3 run. The atmosphere was rocking. I mean, it, it was electric, you know, as you expect PD Garden or any other NBA ring to be. The home team's going on a run, consistently making defensive stops. Um, you know, it was special. It was good to see the players getting on it. Of course, you have a chance. He's not a rookie. He's a rookie. Where's Markel? Um, it was just great seeing all that activity and just the players soaking it in. You know, when Terry was there saying those threes, you know, he's always making a three-point signia towards the crowd. Jaden Brown out there still in fast break dunks. He's out here pandering to the crowd. Um, it, was, it was a good sight to see. You can see folks getting the uh, Celtics were taking it all in. Raving on the fans, you know, Mark's not saying you know, that's the best fans in the world. Um, it, it was a good, it was a good environment to be in. It was exciting, um, you know, and hopefully it continues throughout the playoffs. I'm sure we'll see another game at Gun before the series is over. I am a little bit concerned about Jalen Brown, though, because as much energy as it seemed to give the team seeing him back out there, as excited as it got the crowd, I compared it to Marcus Smart coming back in that Bucks series and how things just seemed to turn once he was back out there contributing for them. There was so much hunger to see him. But he he absolutely wasn't 100% out there watching him. There were the little stumbles he had after the dunks. There were He was still getting stretched out along the sideline. It obviously was a very close call on if he was going to play or not. And fortunately for them, they probably don't win that game if he doesn't play, and he did. But are there any ongoing concerns about his hamstring? Because that is something that lingers. I mean, I would assume so. There would be some ongoing concerns. I mean, you know, he still has a lingering effect from James to um, this series. You know, now you only have every other day that you're playing. And he's probably, he probably felt the effects of it later in the night when he woke up today. Um, you know, I, it's a big curiosity. No one knows, at least to my knowledge, if he's going to play in game three. Uh, I mean, it's something he's just going to have to deal with. And he's Jalen Brown is more than willing to play through that hamstring injury. Um, you can see, like, he was a, he was a very late game-time decision. You know, he came off the bench last night. Um, I think we're draw spot. Unless the same thing is popped, I think Jalen Brown would try to give it his best. If it's 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 5 minutes, I think he would try to do what he can for this team. And he was effective for the team last night despite his injuries. Um, it just comes down to him knowing his limits and being, you know, very smart to attention. And also the selfish training side, making it prepared as best as possible and also being real. Like, you know, I don't think we're ready for you to go. But it's hard to gauge that one. You can't tell a person that you're not ready to go because it's their body at the end of the day. But um, I think Jalen Brown will continue playing in the series. I don't see him missing another game. Um, but yeah, time will tell. So if Philadelphia turns this series around as the Bucks did, what's going to be the key for them to, in doing so? Um, it comes down to, I guess, just Ben Simmons, I guess, and just the Sixers thing, their shots. I mean, again, they, like the Sixers have showed they can do this, except they got to do it for 48 minutes. You know, you had J.J. Reddick score the first eight points in the first quarter, finish with 13 points in the first quarter. 
You know, without Ben Simmons scoring, the Sixers were up 22. Like, that's something no one really wants to talk about. It's just that the Sixers lost, and like Ben Simmons has one point. But if they win, it's like, oh, Ben Simmons has one point. Look what the Sixers are able to do. It's just interesting in sports, you know, little things like that just change the narrative. Um, so I don't think Ben Simmons really needs to score for Sixers to be effective. That's why you have Golden Meade, Robert Thompson, J.J. Reddick, Mark Bonelli, Elias Silva. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, so, yeah, I just think it comes down for them to maintain their energy, to hit their shots, and continue to play defense. These two teams have tied at the hip for a while now, so there is going to be a big perception change on both sides depending on how this one pans out. You can follow Clevis through it all at Clevis Murray on Twitter. Of course, articles at The Athletic. you got to go over there and subscribe to that because you get a whole bunch of content, not just Boston, for your subscription over there. It is well worth it, and it is well worth following him as well. Thanks for being here, Clevis. You can catch him on the Garn Report as well. Thanks for having me, Bobby. That's our show for today. Celtic Squad Podcast 36. We're still rolling through the playoffs. No need to talk offseason yet. And it doesn't look like there's going to be any reason to in the near future. We will see you after games 3 and 4 because I'm headed to Toronto. But the CelticSquad.com crew is going to hold it down for you throughout those games. We got live tweets on the Twitter account. We got recaps, analysis breakdowns and great storytelling from everyone over there as we do as well as here so subscribe on itunes stitcher the banners broadcast and if you have the clns media mobile app you can hear listen there as well and please subscribe and rate if you'd be so kind what i learned today i'm i'm very interested in the fact that they said they don't expect adjustments from the 76ers i think there's plenty of places they could go I'm very baffled by the fact that Brett Brown and that cast seem to think you can only play one ball handle at a time. Look at how the Celtics roll. You'll have Smart, Roger, and Horford all at the same time, and all are very capable and able ball handlers. Tatum has proven he can make a pass. Jalen Brown will hop on the ball from time to time. I think part of what makes the Celtics' system great is that you have an abundance of playmakers. And when you look at how the 76ers approach their lineups, They'll throw Simmons, McConnell, or Fultz at point guard. They're never on the court at the same time. And I think that's problematic for a team like them that has just been throwing up shots, not getting spacing. They, they need something that's going to open up the floor for them and dismantle that log jam in the middle of the court because the Celtics are perfectly fine throwing Baines, Horford in the middle there, completely building a brick wall around the rim and letting it fly from the perimeter. Now, J.J. Reddick killed the Celtics out there. Bellinelli is capable of doing so. Ilya Silva as well. But those are role guys. They need to start to maximize the strengths of some of their best players here. And that might just be isolating those guys at center, going with some smaller lineups, trying out some things that they haven't. This is the time to do it when things are going wrong in the postseason. And if Brown's serious that he's not going to do anything any differently... Well, maybe the series is just going to go in the direction of Celtics taking it all the way. It's amazing that we've come to this standpoint. There's plenty of talk about with Terry Rogier's rise. He is starting to put himself in a special class of point guards. But I will say, you got to look at him outside the context of point guards because he is being able to go intermediately on and off the ball because of how many options the Celtics have there. And that suits him very well. If you remember... He was sensational last postseason too, spot up shooting, 
moving on and off the ball. Not as much as he does this postseason, not getting that many shots. But we're going to see where this goes for him because that has offseason implications. This team, I will say, is definitely poised for an East Finals run. I was not prepared for the defensive dominance that was going to continue into this series. And that has been the calling card of this team. If you remember, if you will listen to this podcast early this season, we were asked a million times what this team's identity was going to be. And with the strides Tatum made on that end, with Smart, Horford's Defensive Player of the Year, capable season, as well as the emergence of Baines on the interior and the ridiculous impact he has had on that end, this team became a defensive menace. It's how they beat Milwaukee through the four home games. Home court is probably going to matter in this series too, but most importantly is the way that Philadelphia matches up with Boston on the defensive end. Switching isn't going to help them. A lot of their guys are going to get killed switching defensively as we saw Bellinelli and Redick taking advantage of in Game 2. There's not a lot of uh, alternatives for Philly to turn to right now, so that would be concerning to me. But why not try faults? There's no downside. He's not going to gain any confidence sitting on the bench. And if he fails, it's a learning experience. If they're going to be tentative about what they throw this guy into going forward, they have to second-guess their pick to the point where they might just want to move on and see who else wants to take up that experiment. Because what are you doing with a guy if you pick him number one overall? You make a playoff run, and you're not going to test your youth. Same with sending Simmons down. Don't sit Simmons down in the second half. Find some lineups that better suit what he's doing out there. And meanwhile, they're leaving Embiid out on an island. There's trouble in Philadelphia. I would be concerned if I was a 76ers fan right now. That said, the Celtics are certainly capable of going into those offensive lapses too, so that would be my biggest concern from a Celtics perspective is that these good, quality, open shots that they're producing don't continue to fall. That's not a given that they're going to. I'm Bobby Manning. Saturday, 5 o'clock, weird start times. We're going to get Game 3, and then Monday, Game 4, just an hour later at 6 o'clock in Philadelphia, and we will talk to you here on the Celtics Blind Podcast after those games conclude. For all the Celtics Blind staff, for CLNS Media, good night. Arena in Dallas, where the Mavs and Lakers are playing tonight, was built in 1980. Now, you couldn't ask for a better facility. It's easily accessible, has all the comforts of a theater, and there isn't a bad seat in the house. But for some reason, there are those who prefer the Boston Garden, mostly those who wear silver green. What is so special about the Boston Garden, other than the fact that it's a thousand years old? Let's take a look. First of all, a garden, it's not. It's a train station, really. One flight up, and you're on the fabled parquet floor. Now, before you get all misty-eyed about the parquet, take a closer look.